Hello, and welcome to Worst Best Sellers, where we read about unexplained nuclear spookiness so you don't have to. I'm Renata. And I'm Kate. And for this episode, we read Ground Zero by Kevin J. Anderson. Joining us to discuss this vintage X-Files tie-in novel is M, Top Chris Carter Denialist. Hello. Thank you for joining us. I just want to ask, does this mean that, like, of all the Chris Carter denialists, you are the top of them, or that you deny that Chris Carter is a top? I mean, both. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely both of those things. But I think I'm pretty much the number one Chris Carter denialist. Okay. Uh, Also, he's clearly not a top. Like, (laughs) that man has no control over anything. I will update those rankings accordingly. I'm honestly surprised they weren't already updated. Like, <laughs> I did give you the press release. So. <laughs> you know, flashback summer, we get a little behind on things sometimes. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Um, speaking of which, this is flashback summer. And this year, because we um, have sort of run out of our old kind of flashback books, we've evolved. And instead of only reading the kinds of long-running series books that we originally did for Flashback Summer. We've sort of branched out into a wider array of books that we might have read and enjoyed in our youth or that our guests may have read in their youths. And in this case, I think all of us read this in our collective youths. Yeah, in like 1994 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yes. When I got into the X-Files in like... 2000 ish. Hmm. This is also a little different for Flashback Summer because these aren't technically speaking children's books or even young adult books. These are like for the adult market, um, which I mean, X Files also was like an adult show that I definitely was watching as a tween, as a spooky little tween. And, and I read this book, I read all of the X-Files tie-in books. There also was this dumb series of like, they were really skinny books. They weren't even, they were like middle grade, very quick books. And each book was like a novelization of a single episode. Yeah. I have a bunch of those. I, so I'm, uh, I'm in New Jersey for a bit to quarantine here for a change of scenery for a while. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was very excited. Cause I was like, Oh, all my X-Files books are still on the shelf in my old bedroom, which my parents have of course repainted and repurposed because that's what happens when you leave the house and your parents are bored. But this book, Ground Zero, was missing. All of the other ones were there, including a few of those, like, tweeny, middle-grady episode novelizations and some comics and a bunch of, like, you know, the unofficial guide to the X-Files seasons one through three and all of those. But this particular novel was not among them. Conspiracy stolen by ghosts. (laughs) Potentially. This is this is well timed. I'm going to say this is well timed. I'm not sure. I can't remember because depression. If we chose to do this because I have just watched the first seven seasons of the X Files all in a row, or if I have done, I had done that outside of this, and then we also decided to do this as well. But I have just recently rewatched the first seven seasons of the X Files all in a row. Uh, So I'm feeling very, like, at peak, like, 1999 Caitlin here. Okay, but my important question for you is, did you stop with Josuette, or did you watch Requiem? 
I did not watch Requiem. Okay, good choice. Good choice. Good choice. Yes. I support you. I was shocked in my memory. Like, I sort of remember not enjoying season seven as much as previous seasons. But in when season seven was airing, also, that was when I was transitioning from middle school to high school. And also, my relationship with my best friend, who was my X-Files partner in crime, was deteriorating. So... I felt like maybe that had just colored it. And then rewatching it recently, I was like, oh no, these are bad. <laughs> it's like the last good season, but it's not a good season. It's just a very sharp drop off because I go back and forth between whether I like five or six more. But I would say that those are definitely the height of X Files. And it feels like uh, a very sharp drop off. It depends on who you talk to. So there's like, People who say that season three is the best season and everything after that sucks. People who say that season five is the best season and everything after that sucks. People who say everything is terrible after seven. People who say everything is terrible after, like, before the revival. Some, like, five people who love the revival. I was going to say there are people like that out there. Uh, Yes, there are a few. Most of us who are still active in the fandom at this point agree that most of the revival is trash and we only watched two or three episodes, but yes, there are people who unabashedly love the revival and would go after anybody who said anything negative about it. It was amazing. Yikes. Yeah. I um, was big into X-Files when I was, like I said, a tween um, and, and beyond like in high school and um, in college also. But um I tried to rewatch the series when, well, when Kumail Nanjiani, who is an alum of, of the college that Em and I both went to, shout out, um, he had his podcast called The X-Files Files, where he was rewatching all of the episodes. And I was like, that sounds fun. Let me do that. And then he kind of got busy and stopped doing the podcast on like season two. And then I also stopped watching. And then he got cast in the revival. And I was like, so excited for him for this like you know big x-files fan to be in the revival and i was like maybe it'll be good and then i watched and i was like oh no um i, I the episode that he was on i thought was the best of those six was it six yes yeah i thought it was the best of them but it was still like cringy no it was still bad yeah yeah and it was it was darren morgan so i was really hoping it would be good and it was the best of those and it was kind of funny but it also relied on some very tired stereotypes. Like, if you're going to cast Shangela in your episode, please don't just make her a prostitute. Yeah. It's very sad for me. So, and yet again, we have some kind of monster creature having these detailed fantasies about Scully that Scully does not get to participate in. So, that's fun. Yeah. But this one, what was the date on this book? This is 95. Okay, 95. I kept saying 94. Um, But yeah, so 95, which is, I was listening to it in the car with my roommate, and she was like, wow, so much about this book would not exist if it was made these days, starting with the title, Um, Mm -hmm. which I believe is true. Yeah. But I did, these in general, like, as a youth, I, even then, like, I read them, I devoured all of them, but 
it it just didn't hit what I wanted, which I then, of course, got from fan fiction, but not even like the Mulder and Scully kissing part of what I wanted. I think it, it kind of hit upon the same reasons why, which we talked about in the um, X-Men and Star Trek episode, crossover episode we did, where like it, it felt like so much of the book was spent around building up this mystery and like it didn't really hit like the Mulder and Scully interactions and chemistry that I wanted. It felt very like routine. Like you could put any characters in here, nothing about it screamed X-Files to me, um, even as a youth. And I think it was compounded this time listening to it now, because as I said, I listened to it and um, M said that when the book first came out, the audiobook was narrated by Jillian Anderson. Unfortunately, this version of the audiobook from the re-release is narrated by some random guy. And he didn't even try to do like Mulder or Scully voices or even really make his voice sound very different for either of them. So it didn't, nothing felt X-Files-y to me. Except maybe the very end when Skinner is like, you're both dumb. This is terrible. Why would you bring this nonsense to my desk? And Scully like writes a report and then that's the end. Yeah, that that was the most X-Files-y part. Um, also, I mean, there were, there were some little bantery moments of Mulder and Scully. It made me, I did like this book when I was a kid. I liked all these books as I was, when I was a kid because... I hadn't quite found actual fan fiction yet, and I was just like, oh, it's it's more X-Files? Sick. And I, I like, I just liked that it was X-Files, and there was more of it, basically. Um, I wasn't a very uh, particular reader of that. And I think reading it now, what strikes me the most is there's a lot of it that's just kind of boring, and I think if we were watching it as a show that it would be like a montage or there would be an effect or like you wouldn't have so much travel scenes. Maybe it would just be like, now we're here, like cut scene, got to get this through in 42 minutes. And I'd be like, great. But in this, he was like, no, we're going to show him getting the rental car and going to the airport and like all and like all of this. And it it took a long time to just sort of like pad the mystery, which I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, think we see a lot of, like, getting the rental car and stuff in the show, but it's always kind of lightened up by way more banter than we're getting in the book. Yeah, I- it's easier to balance, like, visually. You can have them talking about other things, and we can see them getting the rental car, and it's not taking up as much real estate in the actual medium, Um, because I feel the same way about a lot of the villain scenes. Like, we do have scenes seeing the villains in the show, but usually, like, they're only a few, like, they're 30 seconds, and you get all the information that you need visually, whereas in the book, like, they're full chapters filled with, like, detailed background information and descriptions of what everyone is doing and saying, which, like, obviously, yes, that's how books work, but it just, like, it takes up so much more real estate in the medium than, like, a 30-second shot in the show that gives the same information would. Exactly that, yes. In EBE and stuff, we see them, that's the one where they're going to get the rental car and they discover the bug in the pen, and that's really important, but we don't have to have descriptions of them going to the rental car desk also yeah. in the in these novels i felt like they got to go to all these like 
wild and wacky places because you don't have to spend your budget on the set yeah. when you can just say, and then they went to the middle of the Pacific or ooh, they went to Central America. Yes, absolutely that as well. And I'm, that's generally fine, except in this, I guess we can start getting into the specific plot of this one. It didn't really seem like it was necessary for them to go there. Like, what were they going to do? Um, they had to go there. It was inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> Where else could we nuclear test except on the same island that we have nuclear tested before? Well, yeah, because it's haunted. Um, so like, got, um, I was just, do you know, remember that cartoon, that comic that's like, or maybe, is it just a meme? Is it not even a cartoon? Anyway, about how the moon is haunted. This is that. Yes, it's a Twitter yes. a tweet. A tweet. Yeah, remember that it's tweet haunted. that I mentally illustrated into a cartoon? <laughs> <laughs> you remember that 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 tweet is this <laughs> but instead of the moon it's uh, it's the marshall islands <laughs> i mean basically let's scoot through the plot of the book pretty quickly um no there's... i want to talk in detail about every transition every time they rent a car um, <laughs> it must be accounted for please Every uh, detail about the air conditioning not working very well because it's the desert and it's super hot. Yes, how next time they <laughs> rent a car. Every detail about yeah. the Navy plane. <laughs> yeah, we need I it. need to know how that strategic game ended, though. Um, it, it ended with them putting the pieces away. Kate, didn't you read the book? <laughs> but the, it was uh, a long flight. Pieces. It was a long flight. Maybe they brought it back out and they didn't. never told us. No, it. <laughs> no, you can't. Once it's put away, you can't get it out again. The, the airplane, it was too rough. So the, the book opens um, with Dr. Emil Gregory, who is a nuclear test, a nuclear scientist guy. Uh, and he used to work on like all of the actual nuclear stuff. But now these days you just do nuclear stuff with computers and he's in his office thinking angrily about the protesters who are outside and how the main protester is his old assistant, Muriel, who is like his brightest pupil. But then she left to protest nuclear stuff instead. By the way, she um, founded a group called Stop Nuclear Madness! Exclamation point. Yes, she did do that. Um, and he has received in the mail an envelope, which he opens, and there's just like a little baggy of ash in it and he's like what is this and then um a nuclear explosion happens that is limited to his office specifically yeah, just uh, a teeny baby nuclear explosion yeah and mostly to his person because they specifically say that the papers and stuff in his office were not destroyed yes yeah. uh so Mulder and scully come in um of course because a weird thing happened on government property and they are let into the scene of the crime once they suit up in anti-radiation equipment. Very reluctantly, yeah. though, because everybody is like, your FBI clearances don't matter here. Your money's no good here, son. Yeah, they're trying to establish all these rivalries between FBI and Department of Energy and Department of Defense. And there's a lot of just, like, government bickering happening here, which, like, fine. The thing I just wanted to mention was that they arrived at 10.13 a.m. And that was noted. They did. Yeah. 
arrive at 10.13 a.m., yes. And I think the next scene happens at 11.21. you got to get those numbers in real quick at the start. Yeah, so they get there at 10.13. They have their bickering. They have their time spent putting on suits. And then by the time they're suited up and get into the exploded office, it's 10.21. Or it's 11.21 by that time. So I really think it's got to be in the contract for the book somewhere (laughs) that you have to put these things in. I think there are required elements in these novels (laughs) because they happen... Every time. Or it's just like, it's just like Kevin J. Anderson knows if he doesn't. Well, I mean, it's pre-Twitter, but he's like going to get letters. Like, are you even a real fan, Kevin? He's clearly a real fan. Well, yeah. And I'm saying we know that because he put the numbers in. If he didn't. That's, that's definitely true. Yeah. I think Uh, the best part of reading this book for me was the flashbacks that I got to listening to the book on tape because I would, like, I used it to fall asleep sometimes because it was so soothing to me because I didn't care about the story at all, but I did care very much about Jillian Anderson reading it. So I would just like read these names and these phrases and get these strong flashbacks to hearing Jillian Anderson say these things. It's very entertaining to me while I was slogging my way through this novel. I will put one very quick anecdote in and then get back to the plot, which is that um there's like there's there are certain things that queer women can say that are very charming that are gross when cis men say them um but one of the things is that every year at dragon con when jillian anderson is there at least one person gets on the q and a line to tell her that she helped them realize that they were queer <laughs> and every it's year- not just dragon con it's like every single convention she goes to Bless it's her. true but dragon con is the only one that i go to um, where I get to see it every year, and every year, inevitably, the entire room goes, aww. <laughs> and cheers. Yes. And, and like, cheers. waves. Um, because Jillian Anderson made a whole swath of millennial women queer, and I am among them, absolutely. Same. Um, Hard same. <laughs> uh, so they, they look at the body and Scully goes to autopsy it and realizes that like, he's got all these burns, like he was nuclear bombed, but his office obviously is still standing. So it didn't really get nuclear bombed. And also he had super bad cancer. So he was going to die anyway. I did appreciate that all of these deaths, basically like he kind of went out of his way to be like, yeah, they were killed tragically, but like either they were probably going to die anyway, or they kind of sucked. Um, so to just sort of that's missile guys erasure they weren't that bad I mean except for participating in nuclear madness I guess yeah that's true and and Nancy didn't seem terrible either but we're getting ahead of ourselves but a lot of them it was and then also the very end of the book is is a lot to deal with um but yeah we've jumped ahead we'll go back so Mulder um goes to meet with um the bear dually who is one of the new assistants now that muriel is an anti-nuclear stop nuclear madness now person and they also go to his home um dr gregory's home sorry to interrupt he's not only one of the new assistants now that now that gregory is dead he's in charge bear dually is the new guy in charge of this mysterious project yes um and they go to dr gregory's house and they see that he has decorated with a bunch of pictures of mushroom clouds uh and also he has like a jokey certificate given to him by his department that mentions something called Bright Anvil. So they're like, hmm, this feels like 
it's foreshadowing and important to know. A clue, um, perhaps. A clue. Uh, meanwhile, there is like an underground missile silo where these two missile dudes, like their job is to sit and watch the missile and like hit the buttons if they get a call on the red phone. And it's real boring and they're real bored. But in the middle of their boredom, they get one of those red phone calls that is probably a drill, but they have to like do all this stuff anyway. Uh, and they do all the stuff, and then they die of nuclear, mini nuclear bomb, too. And it is kind of sad, because they do seem, you know, bro-y, but chill. The weird part is how much research Kevin J. Anderson must have done to describe all of this nuclear stuff. Because he's like, oh, their chairs are on rails, and they have to be strapped into their seats so they can never touch each other. I just found that. I know it's like, ooh, missile security, but it was very strange to me. Yeah, it's a level of detail that you're like, okay, you just read a book about this and you want to make sure that we all know you read a book about this. And there's a lot of that in this book, but I also feel like there's a lot of that in X-Files in general. But in the show, like we were talking about, it goes faster because it's a show and not a book. But um, to me, this is something that I kind of liked about the. There's things that I legit learned for the first time from this book and like mentally filed away and stuck with me for... Uh, until now, like forever. Um, but even <laughs> like Trinitite. Yes. And that was definitely the first time I learned about Trinitite. Remembered it forever. Like later saw it in a museum. I was like, yeah, like in that X-Files book, I knew about this. Um, and that was something like Kate, you mentioned all those episode guides and things like that. And I definitely had those when I was a kid and I poured over them and I loved it. Anytime there were like, you know, pop-up facts like, oh, well they they investigated this but it's based on this thing that really happened except for you know without aliens or whatever and that was that's something i've always liked about x-files is like when it's sort of tied into actual shit so well one one thing about the x-files that i think is important is that they're always investigating stuff that experts cannot explain so we do get all of this expertise from all of these very knowledgeable people in a way because if you're investigating stuff that ordinary dumb people can't explain there's lots of stuff i personally cannot explain about nuclear bombs Mm -hmm. so you have to access that kind of expertise you have to read the book about what happens in the missile silo to write a convincing x-files novel yeah i mean look we don't know how electricity works but we use it oh we use it (laughs) as we learn from the secret who knows? Who knows what it is? So we, um, we, Scully goes to Berkeley, um, to meet with Muriel from Stop Nuclear Madness exclamation now, exclamation point. point. We also find out here that Scully apparently went to Berkeley for one year, uh, and during that year she was obsessed with activism and, uh, nuclear war and, just that was essentially from what it seems the only thing that she did there was stay up at night worried about nuclear bombs and um do crazy liberal things that upset her staunch conservative parents uh and then it's weird because like in the book the justification they give is that like oh and then her father got transferred in the Navy. So she transferred to Maryland state or university of Maryland, wherever she goes in the show. That's canonical. University of Maryland. Yes. Yeah. And it, it just seems like a, a weird, like, why would you do that? Yeah. You're in college. You're in college, honey. 
you don't have to go where your parents are. Yeah, and her older brother point. is out of the house, and her older sister is out of the house. So there's only her younger brother left, maybe, because we don't actually know anything about him. Why, why would you do that? Yeah, you can call your parents on the phone. So weird. Um, but that is the excuse that Kevin J. Anderson has invented for how he had Scully go to Berkeley for one year, but still canonically go to University of Maryland, as she does in the show. Um, but so she meets up with Muriel at the office space that Stop Nuclear Madness now is um, renting and uh, says, like, I'm from the FBI. And Emil Gregory died. And she's like, oh, shit. So she takes her to a microbrewery. By the way, it is called the Triple Rock Cafe and Microbrewery. Is is it the Rocks Cafe? Yes. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I mean, he had to get started in microbrewing before he got started in tequila, right? Exactly. You have to walk before you can fly. Exactly. Well, I'm going to... One thing... I just want to get one more wrestling joke in here. It's co-owned by The Rock and Triple H, who's another wrestler. Yes. Thank you. Um, so they go to the smart brewery, and Muriel explains that, like, she used to be this nuclear scientist, and now she's an activist, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and she also gives us some of the background information on Bright Anvil, which is basically, like, that it's a nuclear weapon, but nothing about it makes any sense, and it shouldn't work, but somehow it does. And also, because of this, there's no fallout from it so like theoretically it would be a safer nuclear weapon with safer in sarcastic air quotes here from me because obviously yes well and and sarcastic from Mira also because that's her whole thing is like you know so many people will die and now governments won't be as afraid to use these bombs but they'll still kill people it just won't have as long lasting of effect yeah so, uh, also at this time, Bear Dooley finds out that there is going to be a hurricane at Annika Atoll, which is a d- island in the Pacific where they used to do nuclear tests. And he's like stoked about that because then they can do a bright anvil test, even though doing above ground nuclear tests is against all of the peace treaties in the world because they can just claim that the hurricane caused all the damage. So he's like, ah, shit, like, we gotta get in the, go to the ocean and do this right now because we don't know when another typhoon is going to come. So he does that. I also, I want to interject that I did Google and Enika Atoll is not a real island. It's fake, but it's allegedly positioned in the Marshall Islands, which is where some of the other actual tests were done. IRL. I also want to interject that the people in the book kept correcting Mulder and Scully and saying it was a typhoon and not a hurricane. And then Kevin J. Anderson would just blindly go on and say, hurricane, hurricane, hurricane. <laughs> so like, bud, why? What was the point? So we, we now cut to another rando named Oscar something or other. I can't remember his last name. McCarran. Um, yeah, McCarran. McCarran. Um, and he, his family used to own some of the land that the Trinity bomb test was on, but they gave it to the government in exchange for money or something um, so that the government could claim that it was owned by a a family that they made up. Yeah, they both sold the land and agreed to hush up the fact that they had ever owned it. Yeah. Um, They made up a secret family so that it could never be traced back to them so that nuclear madness could not be stopped. Yes. 
Um, so, but he still like lives around there and he's like hanging out in that general area with his horse and he's got and, his. And being a homophobic curmudgeon to the post yeah. office clerk for yeah. no he's reason. He's a bad person. But I love how much time we spent with Oscar McCarran and how much was put into developing this character who <laughs> pretends that he's so anti technology and he rides his horse into town and all of this stuff. And he's mad at the post office clerk because the post office clerk knows he has a VCR, so he must have electricity, even though he pretends not to. He's like, oh, yeah, I got satellite TV, too. Ha ha. But it's uh, and then he dies. And then so he dies. what was the he, point? He picks up his mail and he's like, oh, I got like a weird envelope. And the envelope has another one of those little baggies of ash. And then he explodes. And so does his horse, RIP horse. Um, horse. So Mulder and Scully head out to the Trinity site. Um, and Scully uh, nuclear splains. Trinitite, yes, which is this like glassy stone that gets created when nuclear blasts occur. I think, yeah, like the sand fuses yes. together and creates like a new like mineral stone that can't be made any other way. Yeah, and they see that Oscar's body is very similar to Emil's body, and they're like, oh, like, but it's far away. What is this? And Scully, at this point, her theory is that somebody has somehow sent nuclear bombs to both of them, but also, like, that still makes no sense. And Mulder's like, oh, no, it's an X-File, which, like, honestly does make more sense at this point. But we'll let Scully have her skepticism for now. Um, On their way back, they stop at the Owl Cafe, which is a real place Mm -hmm. and is where all of the nuclear scientists used to stop to eat. Um, when they were doing nuclear testing, because they weren't supposed to stop at all, but this place was like in the middle of nowhere, so they'd be like, "Well, we're hungry, and we have to drive through the desert, and it's like the '40s or whatever, so we don't have good air conditioning in our cars, and we can't drive the whole way. That's inhumane." And while Scully's there, she buys some touristy Trinitite to bring it over to Mulder and like explain what it is. Um. God, what happens next? And um, then we cut to Ryan Kamita and in his office in Kamita Imports in Honolulu, and he just sort of like sits in his office and reflects on his tragic backstory, which is that when he was ten, a nuclear t- bomb test was dropped on his island because they didn't think it was inhabited, but it was, and he was a member of an indigenous tribe, and the whole tribe died except for him. And he was blinded by that, but he was eventually rescued. And so he's just, like, sitting in his office thinking about that shit and mailing uh, ashes to people. Yes. And Um, experiencing ghosts. And experiencing ghosts, yes. Yes. Who Um, want to tell him their life stories over and over. Like, every night, apparently, he just sits there and ghosts tell him their names. Listen, I don't need ghosts to do that. My brain tells me stupid things over and over when I'm trying to sleep. Like, Maybe anxiety is the real X-File here. Ooh. Maybe it's not ghosts at all. Wow, that's deep. <laughs> the truth is <laughs> out there. <laughs> um, so Mulder and Scully go back to the nuclear testing place. Um, and they find out that Bear Dooley has gone, and so is everyone else. And they pull like a little bit of trickery with some 
like kid way down on the totem pole who's like, oh, like, are you guys from the Department of Energy? Like, Bear Dooley's gone, and this happened, and this happened. And then they're like, it, it becomes clear they're not with the Department of Energy. And he's like, why would you tell me that? And they're like, we literally didn't. Mm-hmm. And it's just I really, extent. I really thought the asbestos removal that kept going on at the nuclear facility was going to be something but then it wasn't it was just I asbestos removal because it's I, always something like a cover-up and they were just like no actually asbestos i literally said to my roommate when we were listening to this in the car like oh that's going to be Chekhov's asbestos removal and it wasn't it never came back i also feel no, like the it, only thing was like wear a mask yeah which which is good advice wear a mask could you wear a mask um (laughs) but i i think it's the kind of thing where in the show it would be like funny background like oh they're doing asbestos in the background while we're trying to solve our case and it's like really loud like whatever but again in a book you just gotta read it and it is pointless yeah um the only the only point there was to the asbestos is for everybody to make fun of Mulder and Scully about their clothes yet again, which was like a running theme throughout the book is that everybody's like, who are the guys in suits? Are you kidding me here? <laughs> yeah, We're was- a casual nuclear facility. We're a casual protest organization. And it's, it's specifically funny to me because every time it happens, Mulder's like, they're like, ah, you're from the FBI, aren't you? And Mulder's like, how did you know? And it's like, because you're wearing suits and no one here would do that except for feds. And it happens like three times. And literally every time Mulder's like, well, how did you know that? It's like, my dude, come on. Yes. Also, they carry briefcases constantly in this book. And right. Don't in the show, right? No. Scully has a briefcase in like season one, and it's clear that like her parents gave it to her or something <laughs> because she's so attached to it. But after that, no briefcases ever. These jerks do not document anything. They don't hold on to evidence successfully. They don't have any carrying power except their pockets. That's it. That's all. Yes. Um, so Scully, speaking of Berkeley, goes back to Berkeley to talk to Muriel again. Um, but Stop Nuclear Madness now is no longer in the office. Instead, a um, Save the Rainforest environmentalist group has moved into the exact same space and has the exact same posters, except like instead of nuclear bombs are bad, it says like deforestation is bad. And by the way, chemicals are in your groundwater. Yeah, I did not care for this because like Scully is just like being very cynical about it and because it's the same like charts and data that are like cancel rates are going up and you know environmental chemicals and but it's the same you know the nuclear group had had the same cancel rates thing but attributing it to nuclear fallout. And it just sort of seemed like weirdly dismissive, but either way, like something bad is happening. Like maybe we should be trying to fix this, Kevin, and not just dismissing it and moving on. But anyway, well, the receptionist who'd work for Stop Nuclear Madness too was like, "Oh yeah, I'll just work for these guys. I don't care. It's whatever. I mean, activists come and go, but I, the receptionist, am eternal." Yeah, which yeah. also is—it's not like your contract is with the building, like you. That's not how jobs work either, but... No, I just felt like it was very cynical. Yeah. Just, like, one cause is the same as another cause. Kevin? Yeah. And, it on like, it didn't seem in character with the very question-the-establishment vibes of the X-Files, 
to have this subcurrent of doubting the activists to me. But anyway, uh, it does. So the, yes. So the, when she goes to the office, not only is Stop Nuclear Madness gone, but uh, Muriel is also gone. And the reception is just like, oh, she went to the islands. She does that sometimes. And Scully's like, what island? And she's like, you know, an island. And then, like, names a variety of islands that are in a variety of different places in the world, which is very useful, obviously. And then she's like, I wish I could go to the islands, but I'm too busy with unspecified activism to ever go to an (laughs) island. Um, How much is she getting paid to just sit at the front desk for these groups? I mean, they tell us that Stop Nuclear Madness was incredibly well-funded, which we assume at the time and then confirm later is because Ryan Kamita funds it. But how about this groundwater chemicals, whatever group, like where are all these people getting their money? Yeah. Where's the groundwater chemicals ghost book? Mm, Kevin, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Kevin, you wrote two more of these. Um, So we, uh, we switch now to this woman, Nancy Sheck, who works for the department of energy um, on the Bright Anvil project, and she's like at her house, and she's a very sexy 45 year old woman. Kevin wants us to know that she's very attractive, even though she's 45, and that she wears sexy one piece black bathing suits. Um, and she's at her house. And she has sexy fantasies about her boyfriend grilling for her. And it's, yes. uh, can I just say, possibly the straightest thing I've ever read. Oh my God. <laughs> one it of was... the straightest things I've ever read. It was so much. <laughs> so much. She's like putting on her sunscreen or whatever. And she's like, oh, I can't wait till my boyfriend comes over. It's she's like, wow, calm down. Oh, it's very, it's very a lot. Um, and her boyfriend also works uh, on Bright Anvil. He's a general. So she's like, ah, oh, like, it's great because like, after we have sexy sex, we can talk about work and it's fine. And we don't have to worry about like it being classified information. Um, so she goes out to the pool because her sexy boyfriend, general something or other, is going to be late. Uh, and she takes her mail with her and sees that she has also gotten uh, a vial of the ashes and she also nuclear explodes in her pool. And she gets a vial instead of a bag, which I feel like it's just so it won't melt. It's it's exactly that. And it's like, why wouldn't he just have been doing vials from the beginning and you could have explained away that they blew away or something. It was just and in all the letters that he's writing when we see him, it's all bags. It's not vials. Right. I'm saying like, why did he change the vials now? Like, why couldn't they just had it always be vials? Maybe he wants to be found out. Oh shit. Uh, So did um, the ghost tell him to change the vials? That's the real question. mm, Maybe the vials were back ordered. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) And how is he finding these people's addresses? Like, ghost. The yellow pages doesn't work nationwide did the ghosts go and find out these addresses for him i i i think so i thought that was the implication <laughs> okay the ghosts go to the library and do the research but and it they talks bring it about back. it talks about ryan doing the research but maybe with the help of ghosts well also, ghosts are like google yeah well because also because he is blind but then it talks about how sometimes like the spirits guide him or whatever he is kind of a magical blind person because but sometimes of the, the secretary but sometimes the secretary yeah the ghosts are not reliable 
Just, no, because sometimes they just go blow up people like the missile bros. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> the they ghosts just leave little like scorched spite. fingerprints on the library books when they're doing all this research for him. Ugh, hope <laughs> not. It's so rude. Yeah. Uh, so Mulder and Scully go to uh, the Nancy Shack's pool and they meet with this general so and so. And Mulder's like, oh, Bardukas? Bradukas? Bradukas. Bradukas. Because He's like, all the minor characters in this book have to have some kind of ethnic flavor. Yeah. So we have like the dark Hispanic beauty at the nuclear facility, and then we have Ryan, Kamita, and then we have like this vaguely Greek flavored general, I guess, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, he's, like, very shocked by what has happened and, like, kind of gives Mulder some intel about what's been going on. And Mulder also finds the vial of ash in the pool. Um, So he gives it to Scully to, like, bring to the lab where she's doing another autopsy. And the autopsy is, like, the same as all the other autopsies. And after a prolonged scene where the woman who runs the lab is like, oh, like, people are bad at doing evidence, and they sent me this liver, and they didn't overnight it, and they put it in a Ziploc bag, and now everything just smells like liver, and it's the worst, and I'm going to yell about this for two pages. Also, hi, Scully. Two pages. Also, by the way, yes, she is Asian American. Yes, she does have beautiful almond eyes. Thank you, Kevin. I would like to state for the record that I support diversity in books, but I don't think that all of the characters who do have some non-white ethnicity need to be described as, like, dark beauties. Right. Or have yeah. almond-shaped eyes. Yes, exactly. Or, 100%. like, General Bradukas is handsome, but he's swarthy. Come on, Kevin. <laughs> yeah. I know it was 1995, but come on. Yeah. Is that the best you could do? Uh, so the the woman in the lab tells Scully that the vial is full of human cremains and that they are radioactive, and she's like, "Hmm," and and forty years old. Yes, and forty years old. Very uh, important secret. Somehow she has the, like the express test to figure out the half life on the radiation in these cremains. Yes. Uh, so Mulder, meanwhile, goes to General Bradukas's office, and he's not expecting to get any more information out of him. But actually, he's like, uh, I'm really scared because this has been happening a lot. And he tells them about the Missile Bros, RIP Missile Bros, mm-hmm. um, and says, like, hey, they're doing a test of Bright Anvil, like, right now. And I can get you guys out there. I can get you clearance for it. So, like, go home and pack, and we'll see you there. Not me, though, because I'm going to stay here. Smolder does pack his Hawaiian shirts and mm-hmm. his swim trunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and like, Scully. like he's joking about the government paying for an island vacation, but then he does use most of his luggage space as if it is an island vacation. He really does. He has his sunflower seeds, he has his Philip K. Dick novel, and he has his three Hawaiian shirts he never gets the chance to wear. And, 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 he has a bedroom. Yes, that mm. was... Which is not canonical, Kevin, necessarily. <laughs> anyway, I, that's the real X-File for me in this novel, is where is Mulder's bedroom, <laughs> and why do we never see it? It's too powerful. Yeah, it can only be experienced by text. <laughs> it's full uh, of Hawaiian shirts from top to bottom. <laughs> <laughs> 
Scully comes over and Mulder, like, magically knows her Chinese food preferences, even though she claims that they've never eaten Chinese food together. Although we discussed it beforehand and we're fairly sure in the show prior to when this book takes place, they do eat Chinese food together. Kevin. Yeah, I mean, I did like, so 1995, they were in season three. So, I mean, when he was writing this, then maybe only season two had aired even, but... I'm not going to look this up, but it feels wrong in my heart. Yes. Um, I so, really think it's wrong. I just do not believe that that is true. I, he, okay, I, I can guarantee that Mulder eats Chinese food in the opening episode of season two. When he's stuck on surveillance duty, he has all these Chinese food boxes. And at the end of the episode, Scully is hanging out with him and also doing surveillance duty. So, well, she's not, but she's like chilling. So I can't imagine that they didn't eat Chinese food together in Little Green Men. And I really think that they did in season one. Yes. And also also post-episode, like when, in between episodes, just obviously they were. Just obviously I know in my heart that they were. And also I really want some Chinese food now. That is the staple of every fanfic, is that they only eat Chinese food together for like the first six years of their partnership. I mean, they don't have time to cook. God. No, and they don't know how. They're completely inept. <laughs> enough enough Chinese food, onto ghosts, but um, the so, Chinese food is important. So. Yes. So Muriel visits uh, Ryan Kamita at, like, his fancy import company and tells him, like, oh, like, it didn't work. Right Anvil is happening, like, now. And he's like, oh, I knew that. And he talks to the ghosts a bunch and stuff. It's, like, spooky-ish, mm-hmm. spooky-adjacent. Um, so Mulder and Scully go on a secret plane to, uh, Anika Atoll, and it's, like, a rough plane ride, and there's, like, a dude who is, because it's on a Navy plane, and there's a dude reading a Tom Clancy novel, and all the other people on the plane are like, man, Tom Clancy knows everything about being a spy, and including state secrets, even though he's not a spy, and that's, that's weird yeah they're like he should be arrested for leaking these state secrets and by the way like we did read ruthless.com which he did write and i don't think that had any state secrets in it (laughs) it's true maybe you just don't know them Mm. um there's also a bit where they're watching some other guys play strategio on a travel board with magnets but then the flight gets to be so rough they have to put it away and we never find out what happened in the game but it, um, but it is enough for Mulder to wistfully look at it and have mild flashbacks to when his sister... It, it's not explicit, but we the fans If know. you know, you know. If you know, you yes. know. If you remember um, the many times Mulder talked about the night his sister was abducted when they were playing Stratego. Yeah, it's one of his triggers. Watching <laughs> the magician. It so, is. He is triggered by board games pretty frequently. Yeah. So um, they get they they land and they are introduced to Captain Ives, who is the captain of the Dallas, which is the boat that's doing the nuclear test. And Scully like actually met him because he knew her dad. And there's like this awkward moment where he's like, "Ah, how is he?" And she's like, "Dead, actually." And he's like, "Ah, shit. Uh, sorry, this is awkward." Um, and they, he he mentions that he had been at the site of previous nuclear tests in the 50s. Yes. And that a bunch of Navy people would go and collect these nuclear tests. But the one on Enika Atoll was so secret that 
he was there, but like even from all the other tests, it was so so secret. So and secret. it fucked him up. Yeah. Also. Um, so they get a distress call from a boat and they find out it's uh called the Lucky Dragon. It's a fishing boat, and he freaks out because the last time they did this, there was a distress call from a fishing boat called the Lucky Dragon. And he's like, oh, that's weird. And they're like, oh, it's probably a coincidence. And I was like, really? Okay. Um, but they go out to the boat because they have to because of the law of the sea. And, of course, Muriel and Ryan Kamita are on it, along with some fishermen who are very quickly re- choices and wish that they had never agreed to do this. Um, and the boat, it, it's meant to look like a fishing boat, but like clearly they're not actually fishing. And it was like this super boat that was designed to sustain the hurricane, hurricane slash typhoon much more than a normal fishing boat would have been. It's a sham yeah. boat. So they put Muriel, they like lock her in a room and Scully goes to talk to her and she's like, ah, oh, like nuclear weapons are bad. And I knew they were bad. And like, bad things are going to happen. You should talk to Ryan mysteriously without going into any more detail. So the, uh, they do talk to Ryan and Ryan explains his tragic path that he was on Enika Atoll with his, like his, um, his the, tribe. he was part of the indigenous uh, tribe there and that they uh, had hid when the, Americans came to like make sure the island wasn't occupied. They hid because they were like, we don't fuck with Americans. Uh, and the Americans didn't, didn't look too closely. Yeah, they didn't hide very hard. It's very much implied that the Americans were just like, oh, I peer briefly into the jungle. Looks clear to me. It's fine. Yeah. yeah they, they weren't expecting anyone to be there. And so after their quick glance, they're like, cool. So they, um, the day that the test happened he had been in this like underwater cave looking for um fish and food and things for his family and just as he was coming out of the yes very much took me back to island the blue dolphin just as he was um coming out of the cave the explosion happened um and he was like looking out of the hole at his father and then he fell back into the cave so the explosion blinded him and burned him Um, But he was able to survive and get out and he was rescued and he eventually came back to the island and picked up all of the pieces of ash of all of his dead like people and put them in a barrel and the ghosts of those people have been seeking revenge ever since. Um, So he explains how he like mailed the ash to people but then it wasn't enough. So like... So the the ash would make the ghosts target them and do their ghostly nuclear explosions. But then, yeah, it wasn't enough revenge for the ghosts. They were still, like, very hungry for more revenge. Yes, it's, like, a very elaborate plot that doesn't really hold up if you think about it too hard. No. Um, And here's my question also is, so Dr. Gregory and Muriel are both like, oh, we don't really know where the idea for Bright Anvil came from. It kind of just appeared and it, it, it was great. You know, it's this, or Muriel and they goes great, but it was, you know, the science of it didn't make sense, but it worked somehow. Um, Bear Dooley does almost quote the secret and is like, we don't know how he was like, I don't know how the microwave works, but I use it. Um, And that's what Bright Anvil is like. Did the ghost design Bright Anvil? I mean, 
I feel like that would be like opposite of what they would want, though. I don't but, know. But did they but design they it to doing... make them do the test to make them come back out to the atoll? They have I mean, been doing so much research in the library that possibly they've learned <laughs> how to build a nuclear bomb. Because if they like, if the ghost didn't do it, then it's like two X Files. Because then we still don't know where Bray Anvil came from. Yeah, I mean, like, what is the sound of forty ghosts doing sustained research on nuclear <laughs> weapons for forty years? Or, yeah, forty ghosts in forty years. <laughs> it it like I mean, possibly. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't really make any sense? But none of this makes any sense, and it all is like very elaborate it's very and elaborate. very like kind of pointless. If the if the ghosts don't if the ghosts don't necessarily need the ash to be on site to do their revenge, like couldn't he if he was looking up their addresses anyway? <laughs> well, couldn't. but he says too that sometimes the ghosts go rogue because the uh-huh. missile guys didn't get any ash; they just had the coordinates for the well, atoll, and so like the ghosts were like, "Oh heck!" and flew over there from Hawaii and zapped the guys in this missile bunker. And he well, says that he has to keep on sending out this ash so that the ghosts don't go rogue and just zap everybody. But like that's what I mean. Like they don't—they obviously don't need the ash to be there in order to zap people. So why would why does he need to send it when he could just tell them like oh like Doctor Emil Gregory works here go for it forty two Wallaby Way Sydney yeah <laughs> ghost stuff. Go get anyway. it. it's a ghost it's a ghost thing you wouldn't understand that's what my novelty T shirt that I got had topics says um, but it's, it's needlessly elaborate and um, but then he so brings that, the barrel and he brings the barrel on shore and he is like a ghost. Um, traffic controller like signaling to the ghosts it's a ghost beacon yes you and, know just well, a very normal thing a ghost beacon right, which well, how is there not still ash left on the island so question. Mulder, Mulder's like uh, we gotta get out of here real bad and the fishermen are also like we gotta get out of here real bad and Scully's like there's a typhoon on and he's like no we gotta get out of here real bad mm-hmm. so they go and they sort of waffle because they want to go and save Ryan because he's taking the barrel and he's like standing on the barrel being an air traffic controller and there's kind of like oh there's no time and Mira's like well this is what he wanted this is how he wanted it to be and so they kind of like leave him so then the the Dallas explodes by the way that's a lot of people a lot of people died yeah a lot of people who we were made to feel very sympathetic towards yeah sort of um, Some of them, I, I anyway. Sympathetic towards Captain I. Yeah. Well, and, and like Krause or whatever his name was. Yeah, the little redheaded kid or whatever. I, I do um, have animosity Victor. toward that's, the rest of the boat. He's a nuclear scientist. Krause was the second in command on the boat with the extremely starched white uniform and the cool sunglasses. <laughs> yes. Well, they're all. Can they're, I just say we got a lot of detail ashes. about the ropes that looked like chain link fence? Like, we got some very specific details about things, and then the ghost stuff is all just, like, hand-wavy. Yeah, which is sort of classic X-File. So they, Mulder and Scully and the Fisherman and Muriel escape, um, and then we go back to D.C. where Mulder is giving Skinner a report, and Skinner's like, this is all bullshit. This is, I hate all of you. Yeah. And then we get Scully in a classic X-Files fashion um, writing her report because all of the X-Files reports are these weird philosophical existential musings on what life is really about that Skinner has to read, which I do feel very bad for him that this is what he has to deal with all the time. But that is the end of that. And the official explanation is that 
another government must have used the hurricane also as a cover to test a different nuclear weapon. Um, and the other, and that's also what happened to the other, other people, I guess, even though it doesn't make sense. Anyway, life is weird, huh? Bye. And then she shuts down her computer and that's the end of the book. And that does actually ring very true to X-Files. But yeah. also, this is so huge. Like, I know that the government is always covering shit up, like, in the X-Files and in real life. But, like, a big boat like the Dallas, like, come on, that's so many people. That's so, like, that's such a big thing to cover up. It's hundreds of people, and they go on at the beginning of the section about the Dallas, about, like, how storied it is when it was built, how it's, like, 543 feet long or something, and how many people are on it, and how important it is, and then they're just like, and then it melted into the sea. Bye! Yeah, and I was, I was so, I, I was so intent on getting through the plot and the amount of time we had to get through the plot that I totally forgot my favorite fucking part of this book is that there is a point where when Scully is uh, interrogating Muriel in like the room where she's like, "I'll go talk to Ryan." She's like, "Scully, have you ever heard of the USS Indianapolis?" And Scully's like, uh, yeah, my dad was in the Navy, of course. And Muriel is very put out that Scully knows what the USS Indianapolis is, as if the USS Indianapolis is not part of one of the most iconic scenes in American cinema, which is just, like, fucking hysterical to me. This book was published many, many years after Jaws came out. And I understand that not everyone watches Jaws once a year with, like, three of their best friends and plays the Jaws board game and makes Jaws-related food for the party, but it is right. The, but even I have seen Jaws, and I'm pop culture illiterate. Yeah, I was gonna for the X Files. I was gonna say though, Kate, you had that in your nose, and I was like, oh, do you mean the part in Sharknado when Nova's talking about her grandpa? <laughs> and then, like, I've seen Jaws, but I don't have it memorized. Like, I, I don't know. But it's like it's part. It's part of the like. If you are a person who like, it is into like even if. I mean, like, even if you didn't remember it, like, it is part of this very, like, iconic scene with, like, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. And the, like, it comes right after, like, the scar compared. Like, it is probably one of the most iconic scenes in the movie. So even if she, even if, like, a casual viewer wouldn't necessarily know it, like, it is out there in, like, the pop culture memory of, like, 1,100 men went into the water. 316 came out. The sharks took the rest. Like, it's very... It just was very funny to me out, you know, midnight when I was finishing this book and I got to that part and she was so put out that Scully, like, knew of this boat. The point of, of the story being that the Indianapolis, like, was taking one of the bombs... It was one of the transport boats for one of the bombs because the secret was so, because it was such a secret, um, they didn't know that they were out there. So when their boat was sinking, like they didn't send rescue and like all the guys were in the water and then the sharks ate all of them um, before they were rescued by accident. But I feel it, like it it's just, heavily implied that this was also ghost karma, but from the somehow less powerful ghosts. Yeah. Except that then it's like, pre-karma because the bomb hadn't gone off yet which scully points out but muriel's like they deserved it and scully's like the bomb hadn't even happened at that point they just transported a piece of it Hmm. yeah i feel like maybe kevin saw jaws and wanted to uh include that bit in there you know I feel like that explains most of this book, is that Kevin saw something and wanted to put it in there, like the Owl Cafe and the brewery and Muriel reading Scully's thesis and Trinitite and...
Yeah, and and this was, you know, sort of proto-internet time, so you couldn't necessarily, like, research uh, the way that we can now, so it was just, like... uh, Anyway, I'm not mad about these things. What I am mad about is at the end, also, uh, Mulder's asking about Muriel, and Skinner's like, oh, you can't talk to her, she's working at this top-secret think tank now to um, recreate her nuclear research. And Mulder's like, um, she would never want to do that. Like, I want to go talk to her. And Skinner's like, nah, you can't, it's top-secret. And he's like, um, are they holding her against her will and making her do nuclear research? And Skinner's like, don't worry about it. And I'm like, I'm very worried. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Free Muriel, please. Free Muriel, for sure. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's the book. It is it is got like a little bit of X-Files flavor. Um, you know, like I, I said at the beginning, it, it never, it didn't scratch the same itch for me. It didn't ever really feel like the voices were really nailed the way I wanted them to be nailed. Like there were a couple cute bantery scenes, but there was also stuff where it just didn't track in my head that either of them would do that. But you know, There's like what do one I know? line where Boulder's being an asshole and he says something that I don't remember, but that very strongly reminded me of In Bad Blood when he looks at the dead tourist and says, nice threads. <laughs> it's like Scully's point of view. And that was the only moment that I was like, good job, Kevin. Good job. <laughs> uh, Again, for me, the best part of this novel, hands down, was listening to Jillian Anderson read it, although it was unbearable that she said nuclear every single time. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do um, where none of us are Jillian Anderson. Um, surprise. Um, but uh, let's read a little bit out loud anyway with our, with our admittedly inferior voices. Um, Our first dramatic reading is going to be Mulder and Scully uh, at the Owl Cafe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Renata's going to read the narrative. And uh, M will be Mulder. And I will be Scully. Historic Owl Cafe, San Antonio, New Mexico, Friday, 1.28 p.m. Before reaching the interstate on their trip back to Albuquerque, Scully and Mulder decided to stop at the, quote, historic Owl Cafe, a rusty tan adobe building that looked like an abandoned movie set. The large building seemed the only thing of note in the entire city of San Antonio, New Mexico. The gravel parking lot hosted four battered and dirty pickup trucks, two Harley Davidsons parked side by side, and an old model Ford station wagon. Let's risk it, Scully, Mulder said. We've got to grab lunch anyway. It's a long drive north. Scully folded the highway map and climbed out of the car into the sweltering heat. She shaded her eyes. I wish at least one other city in this state had a major airport. She followed Mulder to a big glass door encrusted with road dust. He held it open for her, and she noted from the sticker on the glass that the restaurant was AAA approved. Inside, the place was a dim and noisy dive, just the type of place she generally avoided. Mulder adored it. Come on, Scully. It's historic. Read the sign. Wait, I think I've heard of this place before. Something to do with the Manhattan Project or the Trinity Test. Then we've stopped at the right place. Our hamburgers will be work-related. Shadowy figures hunched over the counter. Ranters who had not deigned to take off their wide cowboy hats. A few truckers wearing old baseball caps and a tourist or two. Someone played pinball in the far corner. 
Neon signs for various brands of low-end beer flickered over the bar and in the dining area. Looks like genuine Naugahyde seats. This place is great. You would think so, Mulder. A big Navajo man with long gray-black hair tied in a ponytail came around the corner to the cash register. He wore jeans, a checked cotton shirt with mother-of-pearl snaps, and a turquoise bolo tie. Take any seat, he said, gesturing to the array of empty booths like an ambassador welcoming them into his kingdom. He went back to wiping down the Formica counter where others were eating and swapping loud, unbelievable stories. The walls of the Owl Cafe were dotted with posters, framed photographs of White Sands experimental missile launches, along with official-looking certificates of participation in nuclear emergency search team exercises. Photographic prints of mushroom clouds from desert detonations hung framed on the paneled walls, while smaller reprints were available for sale in the small glass display case near the old cash register. As were glassy jade-green rocks. Trinitite. I'd like to look around, Mulder. Might be some interesting stuff here. Let me just grab us a seat, and I'll order for us. I don't know if I should trust you to do that. He waved good-naturedly at her. Have I ever been wrong? I mean, on rare occasions. (laughs) (laughs) Not driving, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the next one is Mulder and Scully preparing for their tropical island vacation paid for by the U.S. government. Um, In this one, I will do the narrative and be Mulder, and M will be Scully. Mulder's apartment, Alexandria, Virginia, Wednesday, 6.04 p.m. With a suitcase lying open on his bed, Mulder dashed back and forth, packing everything he would need for a vacation in the Pacific Islands. Because of the amount of traveling he did for the Bureau, he kept his toiletries already packed in a small dot bag in the suitcase. All that remained was to throw in sufficient changes of clothes. Smiling, he carefully removed three garish Hawaiian floral shirts from his bottom drawer and placed them in the suitcase. Never thought I'd be called on to wear these for business purposes, he said. Then he packed a pair of swim trunks. He hadn't had a chance for a long, strenuous swim down at the FBI headquarters pool for more than two weeks, and he looked forward to the opportunity. Unless he exercised regularly, he couldn't keep his body, or his mind, at peak performance. He stashed a battered paperback of an old Philip K. Dick novel he had been reading and a fresh bag of sunflower seeds in his luggage as well. It would be a long flight across the country to the Almeida Naval Air Station near San Francisco, where their transport plane would depart for Hawaii. Then a smaller plane would take them out to Anika Atoll, along with the rest of the Bright Anvil team. In his living room, the television blared loud enough for him to hear. He had, those, he had seen those old movies a dozen times already, but he simply couldn't pass up the monster madness marathon of black and white films from the 50s, each showing a giant lizard or insect or prehistoric beast that had somehow been awakened or mutated by ill-considered atomic tests. The movies were morality plays, chastising the hubris of science while celebrating the genius of the human spirit. Right now, giant ants had infested the cement-lined drainage canals of Los Angeles, much to the consternation of James Whitmore and James Arness. In his kitchenette, several small white cartons of carry-out Chinese food sat on the table, flaps open next to two paper plates. He already heaped one of the plates with steamed rice, kung pao chicken, and dry-fried string beans with pork. 
As he packed, he shuttled back and forth between his suitcase, the television, and the kitchenette, grabbing a few bites to eat. With his mouth full of garlicky string beans, Mulder heard a sharp rap on his apartment door. Mulder, it's me. He swallowed quickly before rushing to let his partner in. Dressed in professional, though comfortable, traveling clothes, Scully carried a bulging duffel bag. I'm all packed. I'm even ten minutes early. That gives you plenty of time to tell me what's going on. I've arranged for two tickets to paradise. You and I are going off to the South Seas. Your message told me that much. But what for? We've got a pair of front row seats at the Bright Anvil test. I asked for season tickets to the New York Knicks, but this was the best they could do. She blinked her blue eyes in astonishment. The test? How did you manage that? I thought... Connections in certain high places. One very frightened brigadier general who was willing to go out on a limb for us. I packed up. I picked up some Chinese carryout for a quick dinner before we head to the airport. I got you an order of Kung Pao chicken, your favorite. Scully set her duffel bag on an empty chair and looked at him curiously. Mulder, I don't recall that we've ever gone out for Chinese food together. How would you know what my favorite meal is? He favored her with a reproachful look. Now, what kind of FBI agent would I be if I couldn't find out a simple thing like that? All right. And then our last dramatic reading is um, some some ghost-splaining that still, frankly, leaves a lot of questions unresolved. And, um, and I'm just going to read all of it because there's too many people. Too many cooks in this nuclear kitchen. Mm. Delicious. <laughs> but you have to wait 40 years to eat it safety well less delicious but maybe it's like those thousand year eggs or whatever <laughs> all right talk to agent Mulder. muriel said her mouth a grim line above her long chin he's figured it out Mulder was surprised to hear her a former weapons physicist actually agreeing with his bizarre explanation for the events so you're saying he's in it too he's not smart enough Dooley's face crumpled into an expression of disgust, and he stormed away from her. I want nothing more to do with you, Muriel. That's it. E- Emil? Emil? I don't know his name. Emil would have been ashamed of you. Muriel looked stung by the last comment, and her posture sagged, but still, she held the edge of the control rack. We're all going to be obliterated. The wave is coming, a flash fire, a wall of cleansing rage from the Enika ghosts. It's already hit the Dallas, and it'll be here next. Mulder went to her side. You knew about this? You knew it was going to happen? She nodded. Ryan told me it would, but I have to admit, (laughs) a good part of me never actually accepted it. Ryan can be very charismatic, though, and so I went along just to see what I could do to fight with more practical means. But now it's, it's just the way he said it would be. At least Bright Anvil's going to be stopped, one way or another. All the test material will be wiped out here, along with the project people. In the wake of this disaster, I doubt such a weapon will ever be developed again. Muriel closed her eyes, and a strong tremor ran through her body like a seizure that quickly passed. I suppose I always knew there would come a time when I'd have to test my convictions. It's easy to decide to volunteer and hand out leaflets or carry signs. It's harder to say that you're willing to get arrested during a protest. That's a line some people aren't willing to cross. She glanced sharply at Scully, who looked away. But there are other lines farther down the path, more difficult still. 
And I think I just crossed another one. Her eyes wide, Scully looked at Mulder and then at Muriel. I can't believe what you're saying. You honestly think a cloud of atomic ghosts is going to come and stomp on the bright anvil test because they won't condone another nuclear explosion here? Muriel just looked at her without answering, and Scully let let out a long sigh of disbelief. She turned to Mulder in exasperation. I think that's exactly what's going to happen, Scully, he said, surprising her. I believe it. We're sitting ducks if we don't get away from here. The three fishermen from the Lucky Dragon stood up, looking extremely agitated. We don't want to stay here any longer, their leader said, waving his hands in front of him as if trying to recapture a spare portion of courage that flitted just out of reach. This place is a death trap. It is a target. We're fools to stay here. And then they left. So let's play a quick round of Would You Rather. Would you rather read another X-Files novel or watch another new season of X-Files? Um, I feel like if we're going the same route that the first two new seasons of the X-Files went, uh, I'd probably rather read another X-Files novel. I do have all of them on my shelf here in my childhood bedroom or my teenhood bedroom. And I did read all of them as a youth and more or less enjoy them, even if they didn't really like feel like what I wanted from reading about the X-Files. Right. I already know how I'll be disappointed by the novels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we've all agreed that nothing can capture the magic of OG early-ish X-Files. So Nothing. Given that, I'd, um, well, you know, I'll, I'll watch the new season because if I'm doing that, then I can like play Animal Crossing with the, in the background and it's harder to do. Yeah, the but they're going to like give Scully so much more trauma and have her disavow her child and have another baby even though she's probably postmenopausal so well if i'm not paying attention to it does it really count that's true that's true <laughs> how about would you rather stop nuclear madness exclamation point or more generally save the planet i feel um, like we have to stop nuclear madness in this novel yeah, I feel like I feel like stop nuclear madness. Well, here's the thing. I feel like more generally saving the planet probably covers stopping nuclear madness. Mm. But you don't get an exclamation point built in. It's true. It's that true. Group doesn't have a name. But I think I'm still gonna land on save the planet. Alright, Kate cares about groundwater. <laughs> you know, maybe the Save the Planet group, they just need some new members to step in and be like, hey, hey, let's add an exclamation point to the name. Save the planet! Exclamation point. And that, that could sound be us. better. Yeah, they didn't even have a name in the books. So. Right. Well, we're naming it Save the Planet! Exclamation point. We are point. rebranding mm-hmm. this nonsense. Right. Um. And what was your pick? Oh, I I'm stopping nuclear madness. Okay. Exclamation point. Yes, because they have an exclamation yeah. point. Makes sense. Um. All right. Finally, would you rather eat at the historic Owl Cafe? Or at Steaks and Cakes, which is, of course, the fictional restaurant from the movie Christian Mingle the Movie and our beloved sponsor. As much as I like a historic restaurant, um, it kind of sounds like the historic Owl Cafe is kind of out there in the middle of nowhere. Uh, At least in 1995, it sounds like maybe, like, the air conditioning wasn't the best and getting there was kind of a slog. Whereas, you know, Steaks and Cakes, and also there's no mention of cake. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, I know if I go to Steaks and Cakes, I will be sitting in a booth that looks like it's in the middle of someone's kitchen mm-hmm. and eating a steak and eating a cake. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go with the one that I know. 
Well, I don't like steak, and I do like green chili cheeseburgers, and it honestly sounded delicious. So I'm going to eat at the Owl Cafe, which, as all roadside diners do, is constitutionally required to have pie, which I prefer to cake anyway. So so it's the law. Yeah. All of these di- diners and cafes have to have, like, a super delicious homemade pie. Yeah, I do. So the Owl Cafe, you know, I read this book when I was a kid, and then I think... I don't know, unlike Diners, Dives, and... I can never remember Guy Fieri's show name. I think it was on that Some Food Network show. They went to the Olive Cafe, and I was like, oh, my God, it's real. And ever since then, I've, like, always wanted to go. And, uh, you know, in New Mexico in general, I want to go to... But, I mean, in these times, it's not safe for me to go all the way to New Mexico. And anyway, like Kate said, we know and trust steaks and cakes, so I will go there just for my cake. And now we'll move on to Reader's Advisory, where we'll suggest some um, things to read or watch instead of or in addition to Ground Zero. And we're running low on time, so we're not going to say all of these out loud on the podcast, but there will be a full list up on our website, worstbestsellers.com. So please look at that list. But my main thing would be just um, fan fiction. Just fan fiction, please. Yes, just read fan fiction. Yeah, I would I would co-sign that. Um, I would say the first six episodes, six seasons of the show are worth your time if you haven't revisited them in a while. Um, and I will also throw out a uh, wreck for the truly devious series by Maureen yes. Johnson. Yes. Yeah, we'll have more on worstbestsellers.com. And let's let's blow on through to our candy pairing where we'll suggest a candy to go along with this book. I said malted milk balls because they look kind of good, but then you bite into them and you're disappointed. I like them. It has the right ball. stuff on the outside, but yeah, it kind of kind of falls apart. Doesn't hold up to questioning. Listen, the flavor is good for the first couple of chapters, but then it's just like, oh, well. Um, mine is sunflower seeds uh, for the molder of it all, but also because. It's kind of a lot of work. You got to like bite into it and then spit out the shells, like deal with, there's a lot of like garbage that you have to go through to get to the seed that you actually want to eat. Uh, and I would say that my candy pairing would be Dunkaroos. Uh, all the elements of a good snack are there, but it depends on how you put them together. And also I spent a lot of time with them in the nineties. By the way, real quick, I recently learned that the voice of the Dunkaroos kangaroo in the commercials was John Cameron Mitchell, and I just want everyone to know that if you didn't know it already. Now that that important fact is out here, let's move on to The Rock, Paper, Snicked, where Kate will say who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book, and I'll say who Wolverine would be if you were in this book, and M will choose which most enhances the book, or Paper would just leave it as is. All right. Uh, if Dwayne The Rock Johnson was in this book, he would uh, obviously be on Hawaii. Uh, he spent his formative years there, if you remember from our episode where we read his biography. Um, and having over, he'll, he'll have overheard, you know, just like in the course of going around and schmoozing with people, uh, Ryan's complicated revenge plot and also his tragic past. And he'd sit him down and have a very gentle conversation about how important it is to acknowledge, like, this huge trauma in his life. Uh, and, you know, you'd probably think the ghosts were more metaphorical than, you know, real. But, you know, same the same concepts apply. Uh, and he would also say that probably murdering random people who were barely tangentially related to his tragedy is not, like, the best way to go. 
Uh, so he'd instead hook Ryan up with his fancy Hollywood lawyer so he could get revenge the old-fashioned way with a huge lawsuit. Nice. All right. Well, as we all know from the 2013 movie, The Wolverine, uh, Logan survived the Nagasaki bomb by hiding in a well. And so I think if he were in this book, he would apply that knowledge and he would have just put the whole tribe of the Enika Atoll down a well and save them from the bomb so there wouldn't be any nuclear ghosts. And instead, Mulder and Scully would just actually get to go take a nice island vacation and wear Hawaiian shirts together. I gotta, I gotta go with Snicked here. Because we know there's sort of a well on the island because of the underwater caves. Mm-hmm. So seems plausible and also maybe more of the people would survive i mean a lawsuit revenge is pretty good but it's not the same as having your family and friends alive i think no that's legit there's no losers in rock paper snack except paper but (laughs) it kind of deserved it kevin yeah you know kevin's out here on his franchise um dollars he he also wrote star wars books by the way we didn't get into that but he did yeah he wrote fucking everybody he wrote three of the six X-Files novels. So so he's fine, probably. I haven't yeah. looked up what he's doing now, but probably he's He's tolerable. Fine. Yeah. Um, so what do we think the moral of the story is here? My moral of the story is that if your revenge scheme is so complicated that no one try- knows what you're actually trying to get revenge for when you go after them, uh, maybe go back to brainstorming. Mine is that don't set off nuclear bombs because the nuclear ghosts will be too strong to be contained because they will be boosted by all of this radiation and then they will come for you. My moral is just that we don't know how electricity or nuclear power works, but we use it. Very true. Mm-hmm. All right, now it's time, of course, for Dora Day's Corner, where my cat Dora Day will share his opinions about the book. All right, Jordi, you're right. Um, I one of the other tie-in novels did have some kind of like cat god spirit, if I remember correctly, in the jungle, um, and I think that probably would have been more related, relatable for you to read about instead of these nuclear ghosts. I know there's not a lot there that really um, applies to your life as a house cat, so you know, just like with the show, they can't they can't all be winners. Yeah, you they can did start- have an angry cat god episode, though. It is terrible. Yeah. Yes. Um, and you can revisit that and the cat novel uh, in your spare time and tell us about it. Yeah, I, I might also not be remembering right, but there's something in the jungle, and I feel like it's a big cat. Anyway. I think you're right. That one's ruins. It's weird. Yeah. Anyway, Dorota, you can, you can read that in your copious free time when you're not sleeping. But um, as for us, we'll move on and say, do any humans have any closing thoughts? Um, you know, just that you know, is a, is a book. I was really glad these books existed when I was a young X-File because it's just, like, more for me to get my hands on in a time when it was not possible to stream the X-Files and I had to, like, beg and borrow tapes that were sent to me by people, like, across the country that I met on the internet. So it's nice to have, but they're not great. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah, not the worst. It's true. And, you know, there's certainly fan fiction out there that is better. But, you know, again, I would uh I would echo what M said that, you know, as a youth 
who was desperate for more X-Files content. Uh, I'm glad that they were there for me, especially because uh, when I was first starting to get into the X-Files before the movie, there just wasn't that much merch outside of books available. So anything I could get my grubby little hands on, I appreciated. Again, do recommend the audiobook read by Gillian Anderson if it is findable. Yeah, it's it's not the version that's streaming on Hoopla, but Hoopla probably just couldn't get the rights. Um, by the way, there's been some reflecting on childhood bedrooms, and I just want to say that recently I went through a bunch of stuff um, at my old bedroom, and I found some some postcards that my mom had sent to me when I was at summer camp as a kid, and multiple postcards that she sent me like different years at camp, even I think were like, either don't worry we did tape the x-files for you and then one of them was like don't be mad at your brother because he tried to tape the x-files but something went wrong but he tried and like don't be mad at him okay <laughs> and it's okay but that was a serious concern because i went away to a summer camp where i ended up meeting my wife and talking about the x-files and i set the recorder months in advance to catch one specific episode that i really wanted to see which was all things and they they messed it up. Like I programmed it months in advance and I was far away and could not change it. And my family, when I got back was just like, yeah, no, we turned it off or something. I don't care. Yeah. I was in despair. But Hey, you met your wife because of the files. I did. That part was really good. (laughs) So I guess the real moral is that kids these days don't know how lucky they are to have their streaming services. And they're and they're easily locatable and tagged fan fiction. Yes, and their gift sets. Their gifts. Yeah, in our day, we had to make do with VCRs and Kevin J. Anderson's novels, and and we were lucky to have them. Yeah. Um. Thank you so much for coming and reading this book and taking this stroll down memory lane with us, Em. It was Uh, delightful. Yes, it was delightful to have you. Uh, This is the last episode of Flashback Summer. But we, uh, well, we'll get to that at the end, that we do have one more semi-related thing in store. Uh, The one thing that I wanted to say before our close-off is that we are doing a book club for Midnight Sun, and it is on our Discord server. Uh, So if you want to read along uh, to Midnight Sun with us and discuss it, uh, you can go to our website at worstbestsellers.com, and there will be a link to uh, how to get to our Discord server there. So please join us and suffer through this with us. Guys, I'm really excited about Midnight Sun, which is, of course, the new Twilight book. I'm really scared of Discord, so let's hope this balances out, because I don't really know how it works. We'll figure it out together. And It's like Slack, but for gamers. Yeah, but... Okay, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get into it later. Um, our, like Kate said, you can get to that link to the new Discord server at... Um, our website, which is worstbestsellers.com. You can also find links to our other social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram and Goodreads and Twitter, which um, everything else is Worst Bestsellers with an S. Twitter, of course, at Worst Bestseller with no S because the S was classified by the government and you can't get it anymore. It's just fully redacted. Uh, You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, all the podcast places. Uh, If you do subscribe to us, please take a moment to rate and review. Uh, When you rate and review, it pushes us up a bit on the charts and makes it easier for new folks to find us. Uh, If you don't rate and review, we're definitely going to mess up your Strategio games. No. All right. And we will be back in two weeks. As Kate mentioned, we're continuing our X-Files theme, but instead of a vintage X-Files 
book. This is a, a more recent one, and it's Devil's Advocate by Jonathan Mayberry, which is one of the two prequel novels about Teen Mulder and Scully that literally no one asked for and yet were released a few years ago, like sort of well past the time when Teen Renata would have been really excited about this. Um, but we'll talk about that later in two weeks, yep. actually. So I'll see you then. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Bye.